So my accountant called me the other day, and he was like, bro, we got to talk. By the way, <laughs> before, I, before I start this story, I want to say, if you have an accountant that calls you bro, that means that they're either like the best accountant in the world or the worst. There's no in-between with the bro accountant. Anyway, he calls me, and he's like, bro, we got to talk. And so uh, I called him back. I was like, what's up? And he said, listen, dude, you got to tell me what's going on with this pudding. All right, before this story goes any further, let me tell you what's going on with this pudding. For the last year or so, I've gotten really into this raw cacao chocolate pudding, and it's made with avocado, almond butter, bananas. I think dates are in there, and it's just awesome. It's like 11 bucks for a really small container, but it's totally worth it because, well, because it's awesome. Anyway, my accountant was like, bro, we need to have a real adult conversation because you've spent like two grand on pudding in the last year. Which, you know, when someone puts it like that, that's kind of a lot. But like I said, it's totally worth it, and it's kind of a habit, and I love it, and, you know, what am I going to do? Life is short. I like the pudding. But he was like, man, you got to slow down with that pudding. Do you have it every day? And I'm like, yeah, I have it every day. And he was like, maybe every other day. That would help, uh, or maybe not at all. That also might help uh, curtail costs. So what we did is we came up with a pudding plan. And uh, I have the pudding once every three days. Uh, you know, it's okay. I didn't realize I was spending so much money on it, but he makes a good point. It's kind of a lot. So now, once every three days, occasionally every two, I get the pudding. Anyway, when it was all over, he was like, hey, man, I'm really glad we talked. I'm glad we sorted this out. It's good to have a very adult conversation about these things. And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. But when I was driving home, I thought about it, and I was like, I just had a really adult conversation about pudding. <laughs> I don't feel uh, like an adult in that conversation. I feel more like a baby, a baby who likes pudding. Very expensive pudding, for sure. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the pudding cast. Check this out. My friends all have houses and families. I don't have health insurance. <laughs> yeah. I went to pick up a prescription. It was $99. I've never felt healthier in my life. <laughs> when I get sick, I just make chicken soup out of low-grade poultry, and I hope the antibiotics seep out. <laughs> <laughs> Taken from her appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, that is the comedy of my guest today on the program, Katie Hannigan. Let me tell you a little bit about Katie Hannigan. A native of Indiana, the New York City-based Katie Hannigan is a stand-up comic, actor, writer, and podcast host. She's been seen on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Comedy Central, Just for Laughs, and MTV. She performs nightly at clubs like the West Side Comedy Club and Caroline's, and she's the co-host of the podcast, Lady Journey. Her debut comedy album, Feeling of Emptiness, is out later this week, and it's really fantastic. Funny, smart, and observant, it's a joy to listen to. And Katie, well, she's a joy to talk to. So, let's talk to her. Here's me and Katie Hannigan having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers. The podcast.
gearing up for this album release and I'm like just going through the minutiae and it is so <laughs> it's so confusing I'm like this is not my wheelhouse of doing like admin so today I'm just like I don't know what my catalog number is I'm like googling trying to find it out I'm like oh I I never needed it mystery solved finally after hours I'm like, <laughs> yeah. texting people. I'm like what is a catalog number I have no idea so you know, I'm just on a wild ride, ups and downs. Why is the admin stuff something you have to do? Is it, are you, is it all self-released? Is that why? Yes. So okay. I decided to self-produce my album just because I thought, well, first of all, I was like, uh, women's empowerment, you know, how cool. I felt like Ani DeFranco in like the late 90s, like I'm doing my own label. And also everybody was telling me, all my friends who are comedians who have produced or who have gone with labels, they're like, the label's a ripoff. You're gonna lose money hand over fist for like the next years of your life in perpetuity. Yeah. So I decided just to do it myself. But what I what I missed, the missing link was that a lot of people I know who told me to self-produce actually self-produced and then outsourced everything. Mm. So I was like, oh, that's the tricky, that's tricky, isn't it? Because it, it's like, I don't know, you know, I outsource some of the stuff, but I don't know somebody to outsource like, you know, the stuff that I'm like, I need to do it. You know, I'm a perfectionist and I am like holding on tight, you know, with my type A personality. <laughs> so. Well, and also outsourcing is expensive. Yes. Yes. That's that too. Right. But I did outsource a few, you know, of course I had to outsource the, the video and the sound itself, you know, so, and the PR, you know, a few things. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Cause I mean, now that everything, you know, you can put your own stuff out, you can do it all yourself and you can, you know, control every element of it. Um, but there's also the, the scary thing is like, well, how do you spread the message? Like, how do you get it out there? How do you do it? Yeah, right? yeah, it is. It is. And it's just like, it's tricky. And especially when we live in this world where it's like a, a regular Joe who like says a, like a little morning thought is like get, getting famous on TikTok. And then it's like, then he's on Ellen. And you're like, oh my God, like what? It's just like, oh, I should be able to do it. But my skill set is in a completely different area of live performance and like niche joke writing. <laughs> so, well, and do you do that thing? Because I, I did, I'm a writer. I put out a couple of books. The last one I did myself, I put it out myself. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was like, I have enough of a name for myself where it'll do just fine. And it didn't. And mm -hmm. I did mm -hmm. find that every time I would put a post up about the book, um, and it got like 17 people. I'm like, wow, that's, a, do, have, do you find yourself gauging the audience, sort of the audience response to the post that you put up? And then do you, does that make your mood rise and fall? <laughs> or is that oh, like totally. I mean, I just tried, I really try to not go on the internet at all. I try to post and then I never check it. I, I really try to, because it's like, it's just psychotic what happens in my mind. You know, it's like, it's the same if you like send an email to a friend and then they don't get back to you. You're, then you start creating like a, <laughs> your mind is like creating a horror story that I offended them or, you know, something, something like went totally wrong. But, but I do notice, especially I'm, I love to tweet. I love Twitter. I love like just topical insights. And I, you know, especially like in, there's a lot of interesting activism going on there, you know, and then there's also other different kind of undercurrents of like narcissism. And anyway, it's a whole interesting thing. But I do notice when I post stuff on Twitter, 
anything that's self-promotional is usually kind of overlooked, even though like I have a podcast, for example, it's called Lady Journey. And yeah. we, we post all kinds of hilarious, like I posted today, the story that I told on the podcast about, I went to go get a mammogram a few years ago and they had to get special clamps for me because my, my cup size is very small. <laughs> and I was like, this is hilarious. I'm watching it laughing. And we posted the clip and it's like four likes. Like if I had written this out as a joke, it would have been, it would have been retweeted, you know, it would have been a hundred likes, but I think people see the video, they see that it's your podcast and they just assume that it's like, oh, whatever, this is B material. I'm not in, I'm not interested. Maybe it's less native to that site. I don't know, but it's similar. I'm getting a similar response on Instagram, for example, where it's like people are immediately like, like, oh, you're selling something like I'm not interested. And you would think people get excited about boobs of any size. They yes. just, they seem to, right? Yes, they're right there. Boobs they're in right your face. There. I know, <laughs> I know. No, and I, I do find that it's sort of like, they like me, they hate me, they like me, they hate me. It is a little mm-hmm. bit of an emotional roller coaster. But I mean, ultimately, is there ever a part of you that feels like, you know, if you land a really good joke and say, say, I'm sure all of them are great. And I love your podcast, by the way. Oh, um, thank you. I love thank it. You, so you, guys, you guys are great. Um, but do you ever feel like I'm giving away material for free? Like I'm helping Twitter out. Yeah, I do. Yeah? I do. Yeah. And I was just reading this thing and it just blew my mind. It was something I saw pop up and it was about how you know capitalism doesn't really exist anymore people are like oh late stage capitalism is so bad or whatever all these issues we have and i was kind of on board with that but then they said actually we don't even live in a capitalist economy anymore we live in a feudalistic oh tech feudalism that's the new like word that they were using to describe this which i had never heard before but the the person's insight was that we all are these like little surfs, you know, like typing away, throwing out our good little thoughts, making our good little videos. And meanwhile, like the Mark Zuckerbergs and the, I forget the Twitter guy's name, you know, and the Jeff Bezos, they're all making tons of money hand over their fist. And they're in like the top 0.1% of people uh, in the wealth. And, you know, meanwhile, we're just like, oh, I'm just like writing my jokes, looking for the likes, you know? And I was like, wow, that really, that really makes you feel like, not good about it. It's like you're in a rock and a hard place because it's like, what do you do? Go live in the woods and you don't use technology anymore. <laughs> I know, I know you because you're giving it away, but but I mean maybe it's just used for tour dates and promotional things, like and no and no free content. But I mean I've seen some comics just give away gold. I'm like, God, that was a great, that was a great bit. And they throw it on Twitter and I'm just like, man, you just gave it, gave it to the corporation. Yeah. And people steal it. People steal it. People I steal like it. they even they even will like I had a tweet go viral many, it's gone viral many times now. And it is a joke that I tell in my album, but I have seen companies, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't know what this entity is. It's like a, a Instagram page that has like millions and millions of followers. And all they do is repost tweets and they're reposting my tweet. They're getting a hundred thousand likes on it. And I'm not even, they're not even tagging me. Like my name, my name is like visible. So it's like, they, they have like, they, I think they cover themselves with like legality issues, you know, but it's like, oh, I'm not even getting credit for this. They didn't even ask me and I'm not even getting anything out of it. So it's just crazy. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like a theft that you've agreed to. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, it's almost yeah. like you, you're permitting someone to do that. And it's just, it's just so um, egregious when you think about it. But, um, but nevertheless, it's there. It's a good tool. I know we use it. And, but you're right though, the promotional part of it, like, Hey, here's my new product. Nobody really, nobody really wants to respond to that, which is really strange. Yeah. You know, yeah. It is, it's, I think it has something to do with, you know, there was always such like an attitude of um, self-promotion is considered, I guess, like a little narcissistic and especially from people in like the live performance industry. I remember like when we all started using social media years and years ago, people would be like, oh, you don't post your, you don't post your sketch on you know you don't post that on there you don't do that it was considered totally gauche right so i and and meanwhile the people that weren't doing it were like oh i'm a true artist i don't you know i don't post a photo of my ass on the beach but meanwhile other people are doing it and they're like now they're like selling out arenas you know so i'm like oh wow that they were you know they were actually on the right track so so they you were. have to evolve with the with the landscape, but I do think there's a still like a little bit of something that feels gauche about self-promotion. I know, I know. It feels weird. My my editor was like, oh, you know, or my publisher was like for a few books ago, was sort of like, uh, you know, keep posting regularly. Your readers want to know. And it turns out they really didn't want to know anything that I, <laughs> that I was doing at all. And it felt really after a while, it just felt stupid, you know? Yeah, I think that people in that that context don't necessarily have their pulse on social media in the way that they think they do. Mm. Like I've seen people who follow me, you know, on Twitter or something, for example, social media consultant, I go to their page, they've got 800 followers. I'm like, well, you're not doing well. If you're right. a social media, if you don't have a hundred thousand followers, I'm not taking tips from you about, yeah. you know? So I think, I think that part of it is, that it's always changing. It's always changing. And you have to be kind of right there. You know, even the landscape of social media from before the pandemic to after, it's a huge shift. Yeah, yeah. Oh, big time, yeah. big time. I feel like you and I are like like cranky parents uh, complaining about these kids and their social media. Yes, oh, I love to. Oh, I love to. <laughs> oh, I love, you know, that's one of the perks of growing older. It's like, oh, I just love to look down on the younger generations as being lazy, you know, I, these Gen know. Z's and their giant pants. <laughs> I think, you know, I was thinking a lot about you today because I was, you know, I'm not sure if you, I, I, te I teach college for a living and okay. I was in between classes and I went to Whole Foods to get something. And one of my students was there and, and she was like, hey, Professor Green, but what she didn't know is that I had, I was no longer him. I had turned into myself, right? Yeah. And I was yeah. like, hang on a second. I have to fire that guy up again. Do you find that when you are off stage, because you're very, very funny and, um, and your stuff is so, so good. But when you are off stage and you want to be a version of yourself that is not that, that person, do you find that you have to consciously turn it off and can you turn it back on or where, where does that leave you? Oh, it's such an interesting question. Yeah, I think um, off stage and in and around the show area because I almost always, and more so before the pandemic and now I'm kind of going back to it, but I always go out after the show to say hi to everybody. Okay. You know, to sell merch if I have any, to just keep in touch. And, you know, most comedians 
that are at my level just do that as, um, you know, it's just like a sign of professionalism to the venue, you know? Yeah, totally. And um, so I, and I love to do that and I love to meet people, but I find I'm a very introverted person. So for me, it's so draining, you know, it's all so draining. So it's like, when it's, when it's over, I almost have to just go in the hotel. I just lay in the room with the lights off, you know, just to kind of decompress from it. And then there are times too, where like I had a show on Sunday night and, you know, comedians want to joke around and talk and someone was joking around with me and I was just so tired. And I was, I was kind of trying to fake it. And I was like, I feel like I look like Pennywise the clown right now. Cause I'm like, eh, hey. Right. <laughs> you know I'm just trying to go there and I can't quite get get to it but but yeah it's a certain it takes a certain amount of energy to be on and in in that playful state and sometimes it's just hard to get there yeah I mean I was holding a can of soup and I was like okay let me give me a second <laughs> um I mean, I'm not an introvert, but I feel like I'm playing a character in the classroom, just like you're yeah. playing a character on the stage, the comic yeah. version, right? Um, if you were an accountant and you said, I'm an introvert, I would go, well, that checks. But yeah. you are a performer and you're an introvert. And so it's almost like you've made life hard for yourself. <laughs> I really have, you know, and I was thinking about this lately as I'm like, kind of having a little, you know, one of my midlife crises I have like every, you know, every six months where I'm like, I actually am not really a night person. I'm a morning person. I love to like get up at the crack of dawn, which you can't if you're out performing at like two in the morning. And and I also am like deeply introverted to the point where it's like even socializing is tough sometimes. But I will say this, a lot of comedians are introverted. A lot of people who are comedians, it's, I would say the dominant personality type across the art form. And, you know, a lot of people end up going into writing jobs or, you know, performing at a level where they're very isolated from the audience. And, you know, they're going at like a club and then they're not going out afterwards or, you know, doing podcasts and stuff like that. So. I think in order to, I think there's something about being introverted where you kind of have an, you know, maybe it's like a introspection or like the, you know, writing, you know, something like that, that gives, that makes it more of a dominant type for comedy, but I'm not sure. Do you feel sometimes your bandwidth dwindling? You know, when you're, when you're having to be too performative, like maybe there's two shows a night, maybe you did a podcast that morning. Do you feel like, my God, I've, I've got nothing left? Oh, yes. I call it the witching hour. And for me, it's about midnight. If I do late shows, I make sure I just lay around all day and do nothing. <laughs> I have to for my, for work. Um, but I call it the witching hour because I, and I can feel it. It's like a switch. I immediately start acting strange. I cannot fake normal I start laughing weirdly I and I it's just immediately strange so I'm like I if I'm not waiting for a show I just leave I'm like no I'm not really like the partying type but like if I'm waiting for a show I'm like and I'm now waiting in the corner alone so I'm not like off putting a friend what's happening to you like are you just dissolving like when that's happening like what's actually going on it's like, you know, I'm a big person. I am a big person of like energy, you know, it's like energy for me is everything. Like I don't really drink. I ra I rarely drink every now and then I'll have like a little touch of a, an edible, like half, half of a half, you know, nothing. So for me, and I don't eat like a lot of sugar. 
I try not to eat a lot of carbs early in the day, you know? So it's like, it's almost like my energy is high and then it immediately will drop off. And mm. it's like, and I, I need to leave. I need to go to sleep. I need to be alone. I need to just isolate. So yeah, it's like you're crashing. It's like, it's like an crashing. emotional crash. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that you, like, so you finished college because you, you went to, where'd you go to school? Butler, Butler, Butler. University. Okay, great school. Mm -hmm. So you finish Butler and you think like, okay, I'm going to go to New York, right? And I'm going to yeah. go and just be, I'm going to pursue a life in comedy. And you're, by the way, you are a hundred percent right. Everybody I've interviewed in the arts, they're all introverts. I'd say no one has ever said to me, I'm an extrovert. They're all introverts. Um, and they're all performers, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In terms of the having the temerity and having the self-belief and the confidence, knowing that you're an introvert, because that wasn't breaking news to you, you knew this. What, what made you feel like, I can do this? Because a lot of people who are listening to the program are young aspiring artists who are, who are introverts and maybe don't oh. feel, right? And probably don't feel like, they, I don't know if I could do that. What made you think and what made you know I could do, I could give this a good solid swing. I could do this. Well, well, I will say it actually did not occur to me that I was introverted until about 2018. Oh, and wow. It was in this year, it was in this year that I went into a big old rabbit hole of the Myers Briggs. I made everyone in my family do it. I gained deep insights into myself that had never occurred to me. I'm an INF, um, INFJ, I believe, which is a very rare personality type, according to Myers-Briggs. And I have always felt very left out, misunderstood in my life. I've been kind of not really like a wallflower, but almost just like an other, which is, I think that's like a common, you know, that's like a common artist feeling to have, right? Totally but it was totally supported by my, my like personality type. And I, I went on like a few different websites and anyway, that's a whole other story. But I went to, I went to um, a school that had a good performing arts program for high school. I loved performing. I always loved it. I went to Butler. I studied theater. I majored in theater and I just loved it. And for me, I just knew that if I ever wanted to have a, a, any kind of career performing, which was always my lifelong goal. And I don't think being introverted really entered into it at all for me, because I just assumed that like, basically what everyone had told me my whole life was if you really, really, really want a career as a performer, it's going to be really, really hard, but you can do it, but it's just going to be really, really hard. But if you can sacrifice and make it the priority for you, and you can basically be real with yourself about having to do that, then you have like a pretty good shot. So I was just thinking, okay, well, I'll just do that. I'll just do that. And I felt like, well, you know, I'll probably, I actually thought that I would probably be discovered um, in my first year or two here in New York City. So I got a pretty rude awakening. I think I did actually get one or two final callbacks for like an off-Broadway play or two, but I didn't book a single thing my first year here, except some of the indie, you know, I was doing indie um, performance stuff at some of the experimental theaters in the area with mm -hmm. you know, some of my friends. So I was kind of just doing my own work. 
but yeah, I had a pretty rude awakening. I, I was going to like open calls for like modeling agencies. And I thought, oh, surely, surely they will see that I am a beauty, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going, I'm like five, four. I look, my hair is frizzy. I'm not wearing, I look like I just came off the bus from Indiana, which I did. You know, I'm wearing like my, I thought it was fashionable. I'm wearing like TJ Maxx, which love it, but still. And I'm, I'm standing next to a girl who's like, you know, a 5'10", like Russian model. <laughs> Oh, and God. they and they're like immediately like you know I'm just getting typed out I wasn't even getting in the room I'm getting typed out for everything so I was like wow this is this is not the direction that this is going to go in for me so I, I had a pretty rude awakening quickly but you know I think that there's something to just um having the not necessarily even a belief in yourself like I'm so good I can do it but like a belief in like being able to figure it out. And like, if I really want to be a performer, I can find a way to perform every day. So yeah. And your trajectory is not unusual because from Amy Schumer, all the way back to Don Rickles, they were actors first. They were trained as actors before comics. Yeah. Um, so for, for people listening, it's like, that's not an unusual thing. It's a, it's an actual, it's a, it's almost a trope where it's like, it's a performative um, type of thing where you go into comedy um, not as an afterthought, but just as an offshoot of performance. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So did you, and by the way, I love that you had the confidence to walk into those modeling agencies like that. I think that's so cool. Um, <laughs> but my, I do think about like the, like, let's go back to sort of like, cause you're from Indiana, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the, the Indiana story that I think about is Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle. He gets off the bus in LA not yeah. in New York. So what made you not do LA? I I was thinking very closely about it, but I had a good friend who had moved to New York the year before. Okay. And so she had said, she had said, um, basically you can come live with me. I'll take care of the apartment for us. So it was an easy choice. So I just felt like, okay, this is, this is the right direction. And I also, at that time, thought that maybe I would be doing more theater. And I, and I do think New York is the better place to train as a, you know, to, if you're a theater performer, if you are even an actor to train in New York. But I did also get a, an internship. I was able to get an internship at the Ontological Hysteric Theater, which is an old experimental theater, now defunct. But I thought, okay, if I can just go someplace where I have a few little things set up and LA just seemed, LA is about twice the distance, you know, it's so much farther. So. Yeah. And with no contacts there, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in terms of your, of, of scratching the theater itch, because right now there's the comedy album, you were on Colbert, like your, you, the podcast is amazing. You're doing so well in comedy. Is there a part of you that's sort of like, but, but I want to be on the stage. I want to be doing. I want to be in movies. Oh, I, I love it. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I love acting. I'm in classes as much as I can be. I haven't taken one. I, I'm hoping to take something again this summer. So summertime is usually a little lighter for me. So I'll do classes. But I have a coach. I do auditions. I do sketch acting with a company here in town. Um, I do. I just did a, a short film. Um, actually, I guess it was just two weeks ago. A friend of mine wrote it and... So, and I'm also always trying to do my own little things as well. Like I'm working on a short film too. So it's definitely a huge part of who I am. 
And it's something too that I realized, you know, I had to kind of cut it loose for a little while because I was mm. like, if I don't focus 100% on stand up, I'm never going to make any headway. And so I had to cut it loose. And then about, it was about five years ago that I, I thought I was starting to, you know, get into some rooms, get into some auditions for acting stuff. And I was like, I would, I went into like a few auditions thinking I still had the chops I had from when I went to school and I was bombing and I thought oh my god I was so disconnected and I thought oh my god I never thought that I wouldn't have that skill anymore but it just went right out the window and I look at you know like short films and stuff from around that time I'm like oh my god I'm awful and now I have it back again and I'm just like oh I'm never gonna let it go I, I don't care if I'm taking classes and I'm like 60 you know I just I just love acting when was the moment where you decided that well stand stand up seems like a more viable direction than Broadway or um you know films or what it was a very conscious decision then right to go that direction yeah well I had gotten a few I had gotten a few opportunities in the first year that I was in New York to um for example I would do that thing that people kind of do where you know they have the um, actors equity building here in New York where you can go if you're um in uh the equity union, you go and you have all the auditions there. If you're not equity, they have, I guess, they kind of throw you a bone in a way where it's like, oh, you can go um, at about five in the morning. You can stand in a line for about three or four hours. And then, then you can go inside and you can wait for like another five hours or however long. And then if they have time after they've seen all of the equity people, then they will see you. And that's like a way to get an audition if you don't have any auditions. So I did that for about three or four times. And I was like, and I got an audition one time and um, it went well, but you know, obviously I didn't book it. So I thought like, okay, this is not, this is not going to work out. I was doing background acting, thinking maybe I could get the waivers. Maybe I could get enough waivers to get to SAG through background acting. I, I did it. I did background acting about five or six times. Each time it was probably about 12 or 13 hours. One time it was like 16 hours and they stopped like giving people water. <laughs> we were just oh, in a room God. waiting. And I was like, okay. And it was for, mind you, it was about $68 after tax. And so I was like, okay, this is not an option. I was trying to do student films. I was trying to do student films and basically every, um, role that I was going into it was something so misogynistic you know it was all these like young straight um dudes in their film program which is like mm -hmm. usually I think like that's kind of like the makeup of like the film school archetype anyway so I was going to some of those I went for a one role where they were like can we there's no lines we cut the lines they're just going to take a piece of bread and they're going to wipe it off your bare butt and he's going to take a bite. He's going to wipe oil off your butt with a piece of bread. I was like, okay, this is no longer an option. So I was just like right. really trying, Ugh. like throwing everything out. I went for like an audition that was a haunted house. I was like, okay, I can't do this. You know? So it was like every door for acting, it just felt like it was completely slammed in my face to the point where it was like all these places I thought that these were ins, none of these are ins for me. I don't have anything. So I was like, when I went to my first open mic, I was like, immediately, I was like, this is exactly what I've been looking for. It's totally in my control. 
I can perform as much as I want. I can go on stage every single night if I want to. I can say what I want to. And I see, I could see immediately that there's like a high potential for upward mobility. So like where, where there's acting is very restrictive. And I think that's why there's so many famous acting people who it's like, you know, the nepotism and, and, you know, and also like people who have very wealthy and connected families, not necessarily like their relatives, but, but standup has a very low barrier to entry. Mm. So. Yeah, and, and do you, as an actress, do you think of standup as a role? Like, in other words, it's just, it's kind of like another role that you're, that you're playing. Um, because a lot of times people, because it's under your own name and people see you up there, they just sort of automatically assume that like, you're just confessing your diary and, right? Um, yeah. But, but really it is because it's performative, it's not, it's not really you, it's an extension or like a sort of a hyper extension of, of you. So do you think of it as partially an acting role as well? You know, I think, I actually think of it as a totally different art form. Mm. Yeah, because I think, when I am acting, especially when I am doing, um, you know, film acting, I, I think more about the, the feelings that I'm having, conveying as though I'm having a feeling, being in the moment as though I'm having a, a feeling. And stand-up is more like telling a story. You know, I'm not acting like I'm telling a story. I am telling a story. I'm telling a story to a group of people. So I'm not necessarily pretending to have an emotion or experience it. I'm just relaying these jokes. How are you in terms of, you know, because it's such a scary medium because when you're on stage, if a joke doesn't land, you know immediately, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's mm -hmm. not like, oh, that's gonna kill in about four hours and they're and everyone's <laughs> right. It's literally right, right. like you, it's immediate. You can see it land or you can see it miss. Um, when it lands, it must be an insane rush of endorphins and everything. But when mm -hmm. it misses, because we all miss, right? It, mm -hmm. Sometimes we miss. Um, do you, how do you contextualize that? Do you think like, well, that was a good try, or do you, or do you really take it hard when it when it doesn't quite land the way you wanted it to? Well, you know, a lot of the work that I've had to do as a comedian is actually like emotional work in terms of like preparing myself getting myself in a, a proper mindset, I would say. And so that mindset um, is very like playful. It's very loving of myself. It's very um, open and receptive to the audience, you know? So for example, like if, um, if a joke doesn't work, okay, that doesn't mean the crowd hates me. It doesn't mean I'm a bad performer. It just means I tried something and it didn't work out. Now I just have, I have two options. I can either not acknowledge it and just move on to the next joke, which is a perfectly fine option. Do a little recovery bit as it's called, or you know, move on to a joke that I know works. Um, or I could just comment on it, you know? So I'll do either of those, but yeah, I'm never too hard on myself um, when a joke doesn't hit because, uh, you know, especially as I'm like trying out new material I'm trying out new material often so I just have to give myself a leeway of like oh oh well and and you know it's like in a conversation when you're when you're having a conversation with a friend or something goofing around and you make a joke and your friend doesn't quite get it you're still friends and you you know so I just always try to 
put myself in the mindset that I'm in a safe space and the crowd actively, you know, wants me to have a good time. And, and there are people in the crowd that love me and I love them. And, and that's a big part of my, um, I think of, of, of the ability of the comedian to be able to go to that place where it's like, we're just having fun. We're having a great time. I'm in control. No big deal. You know, here we are. Yeah, because I think that if, if a couple of jokes miss, it doesn't ruin the night. It's just like, it's just now we, for future reference, maybe we we don't use those again, or maybe we sharpen them up or whatever you have to do. Yeah. Right? Um, the crowd only remembers the jokes that go well. I know. It's true. You're yeah. right. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. When I was 15, I started doing radio at 15, and I used to... And I started to get a, a little bit of a, of a cult following in my air, in the Bay Area. And I used to take the cassettes home. This is in the 80s. And I would, after the show, I would lock myself in my room and I would listen to what I did and I would take notes. And at first I was like, this is really helpful. And it didn't take long for, it to, for me to realize it was actually sucking the life out of any kind of spontaneity that I had originally had. Because I was trying to reproduce moments that were kind of unconscious and sort of accidental. And it became almost, it almost like destroyed what I was doing, the period. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious to know for you, how self-critical do you get after the show? In other words, do you review the tape? Do you think about it in your brain or do you kind of just dismiss it and go on to the next? Well, I mean, I fortunately don't have too many shows that go badly that I need to go back and think like, oh, what went wrong there, you know, or anything like that. But I, I do tape every set. I tape every single set. Okay. I don't listen to every single set. I actually haven't been listening to a lot of stuff lately. I've just not been in the mood to do it. And I've been just, I don't know, feeling like I'm entitled to just not do it. But I mean, that was something that I did. I would listen to every set, play it back for at least nine or 10 years so you get it, it back. You, you get it yeah and and you know I was just wanting to improve so badly and I do think that um I do think that it, it helps it helps you know at least maybe on the way to the show not necessarily taking detailed notes but on the way to the show just remembering oh yeah you know getting it into the subconscious so you can go back into you know into it but I think now I I am kind of doing maybe more what you were saying is I'm kind of going away from a more structured practice to a little bit more flow-based practice where I'm, you know, and also I'm just kind of feeling lazy. I think at this point where it's like, I don't know, I guess I'm in the mood of like coasting and that's actually beneficial to me in terms of, you know, not being so regimented with working and allowing resting more and just allowing more sometimes things can be effortless but we don't think that we feel like work can't ever be effortless otherwise it's not work because of right. what society tells us yeah right the the fluidity almost is deceptive in in that in that way yeah um, I don't know I mean I, I wonder like because I was listening to what you were doing on the podcast and in the album it's like it's very personal like personal there's nothing to um sacred like it's all it's all out there also being introverted in terms of the of the um, content that you share um you're pretty bold I, I, I love that about you where it's sort of like here it all is um 
does that feel does that feel kind of good to say like like there's nothing too sacred that I'll I won't touch you know I'll, I'll get oh, it all I love that you think that no I'm actually very private about a few things okay. um I almost never talk about I try to never talk about my parents in a negative light my parents I protect them at all costs they're very sweet people. And they also, I, they're looking over my shoulder, listening to everything that I do because they're my, my biggest fans. So anything, you know, I, of course, like everybody, I have like, you know, a dark, dark secrets and dark family histories and things like that. But it's like, that's, that's something I probably would never talk about. Um, I think there was a few, you know, maybe a few like roast battles where I was giving like giving away like some dark tidbits and I remember people doing jokes about stuff and I was like you know it feels kind of gross you know it almost feels like oh that's not for sale that's not for sale for me yeah but but I also have I had a joke a few years ago where you know, I'm like, I actually, because I've been a comedian for so long, I just have no filter. So I think that's probably some of the stuff you're saying, like my friend was telling me she was called the C word, you know, by someone. And I was like, Oh, good one. You know, because <laughs> I just don't hear it in the way that I used to, you know? So I think that's part of it. Do you feel like if you're at a dinner party, do you feel a pressure to be that comic person or can you just be Katie? I do. I do. But I've worked with my therapist on this a lot where it's like, there is no shame in silence. I am, I can sit and I can enjoy the dinner party just like everybody else. And I don't need, I think it comes from, you know, just a kind of, I'm like an older daughter, the oldest daughter, like that people pleasing female kind of, um, you know, psychosis where it's like, I do feel like I'm not enough just sitting there that I have to be making a joke or telling a long story. And, and so now I do feel like I almost challenge myself where it's like, I, at an awkward silence, let's go, you know, a, um, what's that, uh, um, what's that where the two cars drive together that, but in an awkward silence, do you know what I mean? Like, like chicken, right? Like sort of chicken. like, that, yes, uh, yes, yeah, thank yeah, you. <laughs> I totally, yeah. 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 And, and yeah. But that was a journey for you. Cause in other words, you used to be yeah. like, and now I'm going to tap dance for you guys at this party and do this thing. It's been a, it's been a long journey because before when I, when I first started doing stand up, and even when I was um, coming out of college and even in college, I was so painfully shy that unless I knew somebody really well, for example, in my theater program, I almost couldn't really even speak or hold a conversation. You know, if, if I was with somebody in a one-on-one context and they kind of made the, gave a, like a safe space for me to, to talk, I, I was fine. And I, you know, I could, you know, have conversations in that way, but um, speaking in a, in a large group for me, um, was always um I am I mean I remember the early days when I started comedy where I would be at these comedy venues and it would just be a group of you know mostly guys all just kind of like yelling and shouting over each other and I would just be like well I'm in the corner because I'm not gonna do that and I think it was really detrimental to me you know I worked through it but then the other side of the journey was then always feeling like I need to kind of now I need to say something because I'm not saying anything and now I'm kind of back to like okay a quiet confidence (laughs) yeah and I think one of the things I did I did theater in college as well and one of the things I loved about theater was that you had this instant community this family where you were going through this thing together and there's this beautiful synergy that happens 
from the person who's just playing the guard to the person who's playing Lear. It doesn't matter, right? Everyone is sort of part of this kind of machine. And even like 20, 30 years later, and you see those people, you have this bond. You've been through this thing together, yeah. right? It's different. I think it's different than a movie. I think there's something more intimate about the theater. Um, do you miss that? Do you miss that sort of being on that sort of theater team? Because that's a big feeling to not have. Oh, the feeling of a camaraderie with the other theater geeks. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just wonderful. It's wonderful. And I do have something that is a little closer to that with stand-up where, you know, I could go, I could go across the country into a green room and it, you know, there could be a stand-up comedian in there who I've never met. And if they're kind of an altruistic person and, you know, interested in it because they love the craft and they're passionate about performing, then, you know, almost immediately we'll have a good click and be able to talk about, you know, a shared communal knowledge and but it's not quite the same as theater where you know you're staying up all night and you're having the hell week and you know it's and you're you're in such an amazing creative environment I you know I think I do make fun of theater school a little bit in my album you know and and um you know I, I make fun of liberal arts in college in general but I do think that my theater program prepared me for life in ways that I was not fully aware of at the time, you know, where it's like, we're making masks and we're doing like a 17th century dance. And it's like, you could look at that and be like, well, that's like asinine. And how is that going to help you? But it's like uh, understanding something you love, researching it and collaborating with people. Collaboration is huge. That's a huge skill that not a lot of people have, especially not a lot of stand-up comedians. I mean, if you're a stand-up, you're working alone. And yeah. you know, even like we were talking about the top of this conversation where it's sort of like, I'm doing the admin for my album, right? I mean, yeah. that is like a solitary act. I mean, yeah. court, right? It's where, whereas a theater, there's all this sort of like mysterious connective tissue that connects everybody and joins everybody. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And um, for anybody who's done theater, they know this. Anyone who's theater curious, this is one of the most beautiful things you'll experience in your life because it's so organic. That's what I loved about yes. it. Yes, yes. And the bonding process that you have, especially when you're putting a show together, that rehearsal process and discovering things in the rehearsal process. Yeah, that's definitely right. something that I miss. Especially because, you know, now it, any, it, you, you wouldn't think that film and TV acting would be so vastly different from the stage but it's like you show up there is no rehearsal process you just show up and you do it you know I mean I've done like a few things here or there where we've rehearsed outside you know a few sessions and but it's nothing compared to like the deep exploration that you get to go into no and also like everyone's part of this thing that just in theater it just rolls there's no stopping it just rolls yeah. And like it has to keep rolling and everyone needs to keep rolling it. Um, I'm reading Station Eleven right now. Have you read that? I have not read it, but I just saw the pilot episode for the show on HBO. And I, yeah. and I was like, okay, this is very, this is touching. It's, I think it's very much down your alley and I'm, I love it. And there's this beautiful moment where obviously there's been this horrible virus and everyone's been, you know, the world's been decimated and most people have died. Um, and there's this, this troupe of theater actors that just goes from burned out town to burned out town performing Shakespeare. And at one point, their motto at one point is because survival isn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. There art, there has to be art 
And the idea of a community spirit of a theater has never been rendered, I don't think, more um, poignantly than in this book. Huh. Like the end of the world, we have to still perform. It's beautiful. Yeah. beautiful. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to get, I, I, you know, maybe I'm going to read it. I, I was watching the show and it was so close. I was like, this is too close to COVID. <laughs> I was like, I too know. much coughing. It was like the whole first episode is like <laughs> the end of the world. I was like, oh my God, it's coming back. It's coming back to me. I know. But the, yeah, the book sounds I would, wonderful. I would recommend it. I know the COVID thing is so bad that now, even when someone coughs in a movie, you go, oh, for God's sakes. You know? I know. We've all been traumatized. We have been traumatized. When people cough openly, I'm just like, I can't believe it. How how could you? You know? I, know. I know. I know. And for you also performing in a club where you have to be vaccinated or wear a mask to get in, but no one's enforcing the mask staying on. So when you performed, have you seen masks come off and you're like a little distracted by that? Or do you try not to even think about that? You know, mostly when I perform uh, in New York, the last place I was was um, South Carolina. Uh, I think before then Seattle, I think, I don't think anybody has been keeping masks on at shows at this point. I'm doing a new bit where I ask who's had the booster. Uh, and I was asking it almost facetiously, assuming that everybody had gotten it. And I've gotten, I've gotten people like, no, no, no. And I was just, you know, that kind of like triggers me, you know, because I'm like, uh, what, you know, let's not get into it, but I, I find it a little triggering, but I have to be like, okay, just move it on, you know, let it go. Don't go into it. Cause I had never got COVID. I have never had it once. Although unless I'm, my joke is like, meanwhile, I'm piecing it together that I was like a spreader and I infected everybody. All my friends had it at the same time somehow, but, um, but I've never had it. And I, my booster, I got in early November. So I'm like, the wow. clock is ticking for me. The clock is ticking. And you know, I don't know really what to do where it's like, I guess everybody I know, almost everybody I know has gotten it. So. Yeah, I'm with you. I never had it either. And, um, yeah. but, but I know most of the people that I know have had it as well. So who knows? Um, but we got, well, we were very lucky and fortunate, I suppose. Yes. Thank you. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock but, on you wood. know, I think, uh, thank God I do have the booster and, and, you know, everything else. So I'm just glad that I made it this far and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for the best. What about like, like health? What about like, because you are, you are your own entity as a comic, you don't work for a corporation. So like health insurance, like those kinds of things, does that all fall on your shoulders? Cause a lot of people like see one Colbert and go like, she's made it and it's fantastic. But like, mm -hmm. the, but the, the, the back channel truth of it is, is like, Who's paying for the health insurance? Do you get it through a, a union? How does that work for you? Well, I, I quit my day job about six years ago. And at that time, I was lucky enough to get on the New York State health insurance. Um, so I have, a, I have a plan through the New York State. And I think we're pretty close to California and that we, they have like benefits available. If I was living in, for example, a southern state, a red state, I think it would be a lot harder for me. But um, I've been lucky with that. And also, you know, I think like judging the taxes helps a little bit. And also because of COVID, um, I haven't really had to like, you know, have any reckonings as far as like my income and staying on my current health plan. Yeah. So I've been really fortunate. But yeah, I do think about that, um, you know, 
for example, like comedians in other states. I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, blue states just have more arts in them. Yeah. No, it's true. Because God forbid you get sick and you can't do a string of shows. Like for say you have to cancel three weeks. It's like that's a massive part of of income. I mean, I was reading about Mark Mark Lanigan who from the Screaming Trees who just died. He was talking in 2018 and he's like, if I don't if I miss a gig, that could be disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean Yeah. I mean, I there is also a a program. It's called Comedy Gives Back. And this is a, this is a, and there's been a couple others that have popped up since COVID where these are like, um, uh, I guess like a charity where people are donating specifically to comedians who have disasters. They've had to cancel shows and you can, you know, say like, listen, these were my bookings. I had to cancel and they will give you a grant wow. to help you. Yeah. So stuff like that. I had, a, I had a couple of grants uh, and some assistance like that during COVID, which was really great because I did have you know in those first months uh, of course I had everything canceled I was doing like a show on CISO or no not CISO oh my gosh Quibi which was like the new CISO was the other one that was you know which was canceled they said it's canceled the taping was like two days after they had canceled everything and they said it's it may it may not be rescheduled and we were thinking well why wouldn't it be rescheduled and then the whole company went under yeah so we, we didn't even tape it so so that, and then, you know, just all my other gigs and some of them, I haven't even been able to reschedule. Like I had a few things in Canada where it's like, I mean, can't, you can't even get there still. I don't think, I don't know what the status is, but, or maybe was, it's 50% or whatever. It's getting there. I was really surprised how fast that network went down, by the way, that Quibi, that, that went down so quickly. Um, that really surprised yeah. me. I remember yeah. being shocked. Yeah, I was shocked as well. I, you know, I think it just goes to show that throwing money at something doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a success. No. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I think I had tried to do some other, some other companies that I was working for had maybe tried to pitch shows there and they were saying like, you know, we're looking for stars, we're looking for stars. And I just remember thinking like, you know, I don't, I don't love that. And and that's like, I think one of the, as an artist, I just have a problem with, I have a problem with somebody getting five Netflix specials. And on the fifth one, they have unfinished jokes, you know, <sighs> it's like spread it around to the other people for God's sakes. Um, yeah. But, so I don't know. I think comedy is so toxic. I remember when Quibi went down, I'm like, good, good. But then I'm like, I was, I was going to be on a show on that. <laughs> I'm like celebrating its downfall. <laughs> Because they were like focused on stars and I hated that. Well, I was saying good because I didn't like the idea that if you have enough money, you can jump the line, you know, and you can suddenly, you can suddenly just be, be up there with, with Netflix and Hulu because there's so much money there. So I was so, I was really happy to see that like, okay, not everybody with money gets to just basically hop the line to the front. Um, Yeah. Because I felt that it wasn't really fair, but now that I know you had a show on there, now I'm feel bad for being happy it was gone. No, I mean, I felt the same way. I felt the same way, but, but you know what? Um, the thing about Quibi is, is it's so interesting where they really, they took a huge risk and it was like a calculated risk where they thought 10 minutes, that's the time. And now we know three minutes is the time and it's yeah. TikTok and TikTok has escalated. But you know, the thing about TikTok is it's like, why would people want to watch TV when they could be TV? You know, I know. like that's the little secret magic um 
I, I don't know if you're into reading futurism at all, but I read this incredible book back in 2011. It was called Super Sad True Love Story. Have oh, by uh, by Gary, um, uh, the Russian writer, right? Gary Schneider. Yeah, I love that book. Incredible. It's so yeah. incredible. And I remember that book, they predicted, you know, it's set in like 2040, 2044 or something, I think like that. And they predict like everyone has these little devices where they're like constantly streaming their own show. And I just think about it all the time. I thought, oh my God, he was so right on with that. He was. That's a really, really brilliant book. Yeah, it's a brilliant oh, book. And, and also, you know, like I, I'll say to my students, I'll say like, I want them to write a critical response on a pop song. And so I gave them this song by this band called Bad Nerves that I really love from England. And it's like a really like fast sort of like poppy punky song. It's two and a half minutes. And one of my, and it's instant too. It's like instant. One of my students said to me, I said, hey, did you listen to the song? And she goes, yeah, half of it. And I was like, wait a minute. The song was only two minutes and 20 seconds. Like, so the three minutes that we think about TikTok is almost, is almost too long now. It's almost like it's yeah. so, everything's speeding quickly in a way that I'm, I don't know. I worry that people are losing patience and they want to be, they want to be um, pleased so quickly with their, with their media. So who knows where this is headed, you know? Yeah, I think, I think it's going to, I have a prediction that it's going to swing back in the other direction. You know, like we had all those, you know, everyone was doing a Kindle and now it's like, now people love to use bookstores and they, and they aren't going to stop going. You know, we've seen those pop back up. So I think it's going to be, uh, we'll see how I'm really interested to see Gen Z and like what they're doing 10 years from now, if they're just going to be those people that go into the, um, the, uh, the detox, what, what's that like serotonin detox that people are doing where they like, won't even look at a friend smiling or whatever, you know, I can't see it. I, you know, my serotonin, I'm detoxing. <laughs> yeah. And if they're not careful, they could turn, they could lap my generation Gen X in terms of slacker output. They could just be like, you know, de-serotonin to death until they just are completely inactive. We don't know. It could go yeah. either way, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, about also getting up on a stage and doing stand-up. Did you, how did it feel, the theater background I'm sure helped, but that sort of the gaze where everyone's gazing just at you, not at the set or the other cast, it's just you. That laser-like focus, did that, take a little bit to get used to or did you take to that pretty easily well I think that for a long time I was just dissociating you know I think that I was dissociating because you almost don't you almost go to a place where you go on the stage you're going to a specific place and even though you're going on different stages all over the country all over the world it still feels the same you know where you're under the lights and people are looking and right. you have the microphone so it's almost like instead of going on stage where everyone's staring at me I'm going to a very small little box that I'm in so I think that you know I would think I was dissociating from the audience a lot um, during the early times of me doing stand-up maybe even for like the first few years um, but then I started connecting with people more personally, making eye contact with people and talking to specific people and keep keeping myself in the moment in that way. Um, but the only thing I think I really have done is like, I don't really ever wear skirts or anything like that. I'm very conscious of if people can see, if people are like sexualizing me, I, mm -hmm. I feel like that's something as a woman, I just feel like I just don't really want to be sexualized. Um, 
when I'm telling jokes, you know, at the beach, please. But, you know, in that situation, I was like, I want to come off as an intellectual. So the first few years that I did stand up, I was always wearing like hoodies, baggy pants. I never wore makeup. I started wearing glasses, you know, just because I felt like, oh, I kind of want to hide, hide my femininity um, because I just didn't want I don't know. I just didn't want to be looked at in that way. It feels vulnerable to be sexual in, and also try to be taken seriously at the same time, which is kind of like the double bind of being a woman, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. And I think that there's a, um, there's something also that vulnerability you're talking about, it's almost too much. You know, it's sort of like you you have enough to worry about on the stage and in carrying the show and delivering the jokes. And to also be dealing with that vulnerability is it just seems like it's just too much. It's just it's just almost like distracting for you. Yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, there are other comedians, I think female comedians who have really embraced their sexuality and used yeah. it in a powerful way. And Amy Schumer is one that I can think of. She just comes to mind. And, um, you know, I, that just, I just didn't ever really go that route. But now that I feel, now that I'm in my thirties, I feel a little bit more that I have a more command of my stage presence. So I do feel like I'm able to do it a little bit more now. And getting on stage feels like just you're in the pocket. It just feels like a comfortable, safe, good place for you now. It usually does. You know, I I had a show recently where I was exhausted. I had been traveling. I was exhausted. I said to myself, I should just cancel the show tonight. Just cancel it. And, but you know, I never did. And then it was like, uh, all of a sudden I'm like blacked out. My day is gone. I'm, and I come to, I'm like at the show, you know? And I'm like, I should have canceled. I don't want to be here. I feel weird. I feel uncomfortable. I'm feeling anxious. And so, you know, it's like, I, I, even then I could have canceled and it gets to a moment where I'm going on stage and I'm like, I'm anxious. And I think I'm like a skilled enough performer that even if I'm like bombing a little bit and not really doing well by the end of the show, I can get, you know, I know have enough like tricks in my bag that I can get the show to a point where it was like, well, that was great. You know, I did it, but you know, I was thinking to myself and I thought, oh my God, I should have just canceled. I think like energy is a big one to do with, you know, feeling, feeling safe. And, but you know, it's like, well, who doesn't love a challenge? Right. So, right. right. And also it's kind of interesting to hear that a comic can just decide to cancel a show, right? Like in other words, like this isn't going to happen tonight. You just call the club and say, it's not going to happen. And then, so that, that is something that people do. Well, this particular show was a, a show, not at a club. Okay. So a club, a club has a lot more strict rules where you're expected to like confirm the day of, or, you know, some clubs don't accept a cancellation at the last minute for any reason other than dire illness or right. your plane getting delayed. So I, there's a little bit more leeway. Um, you know, in New York, we have clubs and then we also have a lot of independent venues and we have bar shows. They're called bar shows. So like a bar show is something that I would be, feel like totally fine canceling even last minute because it would just be easy for me to say like oh there's a hundred comedians I know at the city who would you know love to do it here take so and so you know but yeah for a club you would you would never cancel even if you were ill unless you had COVID or something right right that's the only that's the critic proof excuse right like (laughs) you should probably not come here um did the did the Colbert appearance did was there a measurable change the next day? Did you feel the molecules of your life rearrange, or or was it just business as usual? 
Um, you know, it's hard to say. I do think that that was 2018 was a very good year for me. So I had a lot of successes in that year that um, took me to the next level of my career. And after I did do Colbert, I had the credit that I had needed and that I had been hoping for that I could do more professional work. So because I have that credit, I've been able to do road work. Um, you know, basically I could feature, you know, I had been struggling to feature even before then, which you're basically breaking even with travel, but you're kind of doing it for the experience. Yeah. So, so that was a really great accomplishment for me, but you know, it's not everything. And now it's like, it's one of those things where it was like, oh, that was great for like a year. And now, now it's a few years later. And now it's like, well, okay, now we have to go on to the next thing, which is like, I'm sure, you know, it's like the, it's kind of like the artist's torture of like, oh, I had an accomplishment and now, you know, the feelings never go away and we always have to be working and, you know. It's true because like, you know, I put a book out and then I was like, uh, I looked at the calendar. I went, wow, it's been a year and a half since that book came out. I better, I better put another one out because the time passes so quickly between projects where you go, I can't keep writing that, you know, people have forgotten that for sure. So no, I, yeah. no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I love the album and I, and I love the podcast and I just, I just think you're awesome. And I really appreciate you doing this and having this, this conversation with me. Oh, well, thank you so much. I love chatting with you. I enjoyed that too. That was Katie Hannigan. Great conversation. Really funny album. Feeling of Emptiness is what it's called. Pick it up at katiehannigan.com. That is two N's in her name. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com will fill you in on our radio station. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. Or you can email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Speaking of Stereo Embers, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, tell a friend, rate and review. The order and how you do those things is not important. Just that you do them will make us happy. So demanding. Let's close the show with what? We usually do music. Uh, let's do The Laughter by the Marionettes, the saddest song about comedy. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. They talk about me, they talk about you, talking about what we've done through the years. Ask me about it, I know what you feel. I'll hold this together. I know it's a few Moments to keep in my heart for you You painted the picture the way that we are But they never see it